You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. We're going to hear from some people that perhaps most of us in this room would have heard of. If you watch the news, you've probably heard their names. If you've seen our introductory videos last week, you probably know a little bit more about them. But Kevin and Julia Garrett uh, followed really the prompting of God in their lives to go to China to serve as missionaries in 1984. Some of you weren't even born then. 1984. And they served there in various things that uh, they, they accomplished. And they'll share some of that. But in 2014, they were living on the border of North Korea and China because they were working in both communities. And they were arrested in 2014 uh, as spies, charged with espionage. And this became, began what became a 775-day imprisonment and detention. And their story is, uh, the last two gatherings have just been incredible, and I hope it really speaks to your heart, because their story of how God brought them through some of the most difficult circumstances, and not just brought them through, allowed them to do incredible kingdom work when they did this. It's pretty incredible. So friends, I want to, if you're online or you're in this room, can you put your hands together and let's welcome Kevin and Julia Garrett. Well, good morning, One Church. That was good. And One Church Online? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Just text in your reply. Your reply. Uh, it's good to be here today. Very good. Um, you know, when we first came back, people said, oh, it's good to see you. And I just said, it's really good to be seen. <laughs> I love what God says in Revelation 7-9. He says, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tr- nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You know, one day we really be, will be one church, right, in heaven. And we are one church now. It just doesn't always look that way. And I'm looking forward to that. We first went to China, as Pastor Jonathan said, in 1984, but we went as newlyweds. We were just married a few weeks and went for a year. We came back 32 years later. A family developed. We have four children. We have three grandchildren. Right now, our children are a little bit uh, scattered. One is in Vancouver. One is in Edmonton. We have our youngest son, who is in the Seattle area, getting ready to go back into global work. And we have our daughter who has our grandchildren with her in Melbourne, Australia. So somehow we have to get there to see them. She's doing her PhD, but anyways, that's that's great. What we want you to hear today is that in missions, and really in following Jesus, there's a cost. There's a cost to going, there's a cost to praying, and there's a cost to giving. But I want you to understand that the cost is worth it. It really is. The one cost for us was two years, 775 days in prison. But I want you to watch this video for a moment and then I'll come back. In August of 1984, Julie and I went to China to teach English and we ended up staying for 30 years and getting involved in aid projects, working with churches and orphanages. We just got married, we were 23, 24 and we met two different individuals who had both come back from teaching in China. And they just kind of dropped the seed there. And finally, 
The Chinese government invited us to come and teach English, so we went over to China. We really loved it. We set up kindergartens, orphanage, schools, training centers in very small towns in China. Julie and I were arrested on August 4th, 2014. All these people came and grabbed us, separated us, and didn't see Julie for months after that. I suddenly was taken by two men, and I remember thinking, who are these people? Like, where am I going? What's wrong? They, they must, must be the wrong people. They must have made a mistake. They took me to our apartment with about 18 security personnel. And then they proceeded to just to ransack our apartment, taking books off the shelf, going through everything that we owned, like our children's binoculars. And they said, oh, you know, kind of like, oh, this is spy material. Or they found a, a computer in a cupboard, and they said, aha, you're trying to hide it. And this went on till four or five o'clock in the morning. They put me back into the car, and they drove for close to an hour out of town. I ended up at this kind of remote compound, and through locked doors, they lead me into this room. There's a bed, a couple desks, and two cameras mounted on the wall. The windows were uh, covered with very dark, heavy curtains. And that's where I spent the next six months. The interrogation was hard, was terrifying, but I just thought, okay, I'm here to love these people. So I'm gonna try to serve them, I'm gonna try to be kind. And I thought, you know, this is their job. They think I'm a spy, I'm not a spy. We're both in a really awkward position. They say, we're not interested in your Christian work. And so going through my mind, I'm thinking, well, then what could you be interested in? There's nothing else that we're doing here. I mean, we're running a coffee shop, we're working with an orphanage, we're doing aid work into North Korea. And all that, well, this should be over really quick because we're not. When I found out that the whole world knew and that there were so many people praying, I thought, aha, that's how the family of God works together at times like that. You're all alone, you don't know anyone's with you, you think nobody even knows you're there, but you're not forgotten. They verbally threatened many times, uh, threatened execution, they threatened to send me to North Korea, they said we could get seven or eight years in prison, but they never physically hurt me in any way. I didn't know how Julia was. I figured out after a while that she was in the same building. Kevin was actually downstairs in the same building as me, and he realized that I went out for my walk around the outdoor courtyard right after he did. He started drawing little hearts with his boots, planted two boots like this to make hearts in the snow. And sometimes the guards would stamp them out, but sometimes I'd come out and there would be these little hearts in the snow. And we used like little ways like that to kind of send each other love messages, and I think that really helped us to get through. The morning of February 3rd, they got up at my normal time, had breakfast, and it wasn't long after breakfast that they told me to pack up my things, and then we drove an hour and a half to the prison, and that was a, a whole new, well, experience really isn't quite the right, right word. It was um, a whole new level of an imprisonment, of being detained. My head investigator drove me back to my apartment and said, come down whenever you're asked and don't do this, don't do that, follow this, follow that. And then the next 19 months was in that context for me and in prison for Kevin. And I entered into that you know, huge uh, building, big, uh, thick gray walls, uh, very tall, probably 20 or 25 feet tall, I'm guessing, and uh, get put into cell 318. I had up to 14 other people in that cell, and that's where I, I stayed for the next 19 months. Once in a while, 
the investigators came back and they said, oh, it'll be over soon. And so, you know, I fixed my hope on soon, but then soon became months and they said, oh, it's been uh, extended for another six months. And yeah, at that point I would just, because I, I thought the time is almost up, I'm going to be released. And that was Christmas 2015. And I hope just it fell out. I just, um, I guess you could say I felt just despair because I thought, how can I do another six months? There's still no court date in sight. There's still nothing in sight. Inside the prison cell itself, it was about 12 paces long by about five, not quite six paces wide. And when you have 14 people in that kind of space, it's crowded. Your bathroom is a, a glass-walled enclosure, maybe two paces by less than one. Having glass walls and having cameras uh, facing you all day long in that cell, and, and when you're in the bathroom is not, um, well, it's not pleasant. I guess we'll have to say that. The food cart comes down and they slop it in with a, a big ladle into a communal bowl. Uh, it's usually enough for three to four people to eat, so you, you eat in a group, and that's how we ate every day. All the way through, the consular officials kept telling me when they came that this is being raised at the highest levels, you know, the, the government's working on this. And, and I, I had hope in that, that they were doing something, that it wasn't on the back burner. That when uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper came, he did bring it up with uh, Chinese officials, that when Prime Minister Trudeau came, he brought it up at the highest levels. For that, we're incredibly grateful. And then September 13th happened. They pronounced me guilty of espionage and spying, and they sentenced me to eight years in prison. And um, that was upsetting. But the embassy official, when I was able to talk to him afterwards, he said, it's okay, Kevin, we've been told that you could be deported as early as Thursday, but we won't know for sure until you're actually on the plane. I hardly slept that night. I think I was up much of the night just anticipating, is this really gonna happen? Am I really gonna be released? Or is it just another huge disappointment? And a little before six, they came to get me. And we go in this, three-car convoy to the nearest international airport, which is about three hours away. And they get put on the plane as the very last passenger on a plane bound for Tokyo. Uh, as the plane door closed, our lawyer, he handed me a, a box of maple cream cookies and his iPad with pictures and messages from Julie and the kids on it. But it was just, um, I think the shock was just settling in that this is really happening. And when I got off that plane, border security officials met us and took us uh, through a back way. And I walked into that room where Julia and my, my family were there, the kids were there. It was just, it was unbelievable and almost unreal. And then the door opens and Kevin like walks in with this massive beard and this like huge smile. And like everyone just like rushed into his arms. And it was like this giant <laughs> hug. <laughs> You don't ever want that moment to go away. You're just so happy and so thankful and so grateful. I've been waiting for 775 days for that day to happen. It was an amazing and wonderful reunion. 
on September 15th. September 15th, 2016 was the day of our reunion. Happens to be the day of our oldest daughter's birthday as well, so it's a double celebration. But those two years, those 775 days, let me say it again. It cost, but it was worth it. I wouldn't change it, but I don't want to repeat it either. Okay. <laughs> it cost many people prayer. Many, many people prayed for us. We, kept, we keep hearing and kept hearing hundreds of people, thousands of people are praying for you. It costs to be in prison in China. There were legal bills to take care of, which I had no idea at the time. But one man was moved by God and just came to our family and came to our church and said, whatever they are, I'll pay. He had no idea they'd be very significant. But he did. He didn't count the cost, he just took the cost. Psalm 66, 8 to 11 says, Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison. I want you to understand, it was God's idea. Okay? It was God's idea to put us in prison because he had some things he wanted done. Because when you enter prison in China, it's hopeless. They have this little bit of trivia you should know. That they have a 99.9% .9 conviction rate. If you're arrested or you're abducted as we were, you're guilty. It doesn't matter what's happened. In Canada, it's only 63%, just so you know. But that day we were abducted, August 4th, 2014. You know, those 18 security people took us, uh, took me back to our apartment, and um, they just ransacked the whole place, tore everything apart. The end of the night, four or five o'clock in the morning, what wasn't in the video was they said, get some clothes for you and Julia. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, this could be a little bit longer than I thought. And they said, so I did that. And then I grabbed our Bibles. And the main guy in charge of these 18 security people, I know there was 18 because I counted. I had time to count. I grabbed our Bibles and he said, you can't have those. The Holy Spirit in me rose up and said, well, that's not very nice of you. Nothing was nice about that night, okay? But after a bit of discussion, they said, okay, you can have your Bibles. So from moment one, we had our Bibles with us. You know how good that was? You know how life-giving that was? That's all we had for the very longest time. Some of you are wondering, why? Why would they take us? Unknown to us, and we didn't know this for two years, Canada arrested a Chinese spy, his name was Subin, arrested in Vancouver, later extradited to the U.S. China took us because they wanted to trade. Well, Canada doesn't trade. But we knew nothing of this for two years. Much like what's going on actually in China today. December 10th, they arrest the two guys named Michael. And um, very similar situation. The actual one guy was taken in the same city we were, Dandong, in the border of China and North Korea. He probably has the same investigators. Maybe he's in the same place that we were. I don't know. But things happen. Hard times, pain. But you know what? They serve to advance the kingdom of God. Okay? They don't defeat you. They serve to advance the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives. We're God's captives. In Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death, the other the aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? We're all that aroma, you know. None of these blindsiding things in our lives we are capable of handling well on our own. Yes, it's important that we have friends and family and support structures. But when even all of those are taken away, what's left? Only a relationship with the living God, if we know him. That made all the difference. And we had had other kind of troubles in our life before. We had lived in China for a lot of time. We'd raised our children. You know, when you raise children, different things happen. Once our son was on a boat, overnight ferry, and he fell off the top bunk, five years old, landed on the ground, split his tongue into three on a cement floor. We're in the middle of the ocean. No doctors, no cell phones at that time. Eight hours until we got to the nearest shore. We'd had troubles. But we'd called on God every time and every time God answered not always exactly the way we wanted or the time we wanted but as he answered he trained us in trust God is faithful God is with you God will never leave you God will wherever you go he's already there waiting for you so we had a history with him by the time this seventh assignment in China happened. And there were two things that I think China didn't expect. And the interrogators didn't expect. And the police didn't expect. One was that we really loved China by then. With a really deep and powerful and profound love. That had developed over time through friendship, and that it also developed as God really gave us his own love for the country and for the people. And the second thing they didn't count on was our relationship with God and the difference that would make in that brand new setting. The night I was abducted, uh, I was obviously very terrified. I'm as human as you are. Uh, panic, fear, all the normal feelings just overcome you. And you're just shaking. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what my body would do in shock. Now I know. You know, it just starts to shake. I grabbed into my purse, because I had all my teaching materials. I was actually doing teacher training that day. And I grabbed into my purse, and I pulled out four photos of my children, four children. And I thought, wherever I go, I'm taking them as far as I can. And they, at first, tried to grab them from me, but eventually I said, don't take my children from me. And I think it struck a chord, because in China, children are deeply loved. <laughs> and they said, okay, take your children. <laughs> and I was like holding them really tight, and it was just those little school photos, you know, the little tiny square ones, so they didn't take up much space. And I took them with them, and they stripped everything else from me, except what I was wearing, and they threw me back into this car, and they drove out in the middle into the darkness, and I thought, seriously, this is not real. I am going to wake up 
This is, you know, a movie or something. It's not my real life. But I'm noticing my body is shaking. And as I'm reacting as a human, God is at work. John 5, 17, my father is always at work. Jesus said, and I too am working. And I could feel this peace that didn't make sense. Just filling me, just coming and being with me. And I'm going in the car and it's pitch black and I have no idea where I'm going. And I'm clutching my, two child, my four children and I feel this peace that passes understanding. It didn't stop me from shaking. It didn't stop the fear instantly. But it was like, I've got this, Julia. I'm not surprised. I knew this was going to happen. I'm going to pull from the reservoir of all the things that I've been teaching you over the years. Why? Because you love these people. I'm choosing you to love them even in this situation. That's an incredible task. And I said, oh God, I, don't, I really don't think I can be successful. The first day I woke up in the morning, I ended up in this compound. I was 50 or 60 guards just to, for us. Kevin and I were the only people in the compound. I didn't know he was there for three months. And I woke up in the morning and two guards, there were two guards planted inside my room and the bathroom's there and everything's there. And basically never leave the room except for a 15 minute walk around the courtyard, which the government pressed for, it didn't happen at first. And that was in the pitch, pitch dark at first. And then a little six steps I could walk to the next room which was the interrogation room. And I would every day hear these three knocks on my door. And then my heart would just fill with human dread because I knew it meant I was going to the interrogation room. But as the days passed, and they actually gave me my Bible because Kevin had fought for it, but I didn't even know that. I thought, oh, China's being nice, so I was actually very grateful to them for that. And they accepted that praise. And I read this word. And I read, got to Deuteronomy 30, you know, verses 11 to 14, it says, the word is with you in your heart and in your mind so that you can do it. And I thought, okay, I can do it. And I just was filled with an inner courage that you can't muster up on your own. It came directly from God, from my relationship with God. And so I would have this courage. And as I went into the room, I'd have these words spinning around in my head and they would be firing these questions at me about being a spy and all this incredulous stuff that they can do in six hours a day of interrogation for six months. Now that's an endurance test. <laughs> and it wouldn't be one that I would have thought I would be able to endure, but for God, because God had a plan for this. He was going to show them that me loving them and him being present was going to do something else while they were in the middle of doing their interrogations and all their other things. And that was make himself known. That's incredible. I didn't have to figure out how to make him known. He made himself known. 
He gave me the idea, name the interrogators, name the guards. So I gave them all names. I gave them all English names. I thought, I'm not going to call them numbers. And they don't really talk to you anyway, but I still talk to them. You know, hello, Violet. Hi, Panda. Welcome to my room. You know, as they come in for their eight-hour shift to sit there and write down in notebooks everything I do. You know, and then they, first of all, they just like, why is this strange spy talking to me? But little by little... I treated them like my children, and they started to almost become like my children. And I named the interrogators Stephen and John and Benjamin. And I just would pray for them in my room. Please help them just to be kind today. Help them to be nice. Help you know, them to know that I'm telling the truth. And eventually, they heard that I was praying for them, and they asked me in one of the interrogations, what are our names? <laughs> How incredulous is that? They want to know their names, their English names. So I told them. And so then they thought it was hilarious because Benjamin in Chinese, Benji, if you, if you do it in a short form, Benji, it means foolish chicken. So they loved it. And they would be yelling down the hall before my interrogation, calling him, foolish chicken, come on for the interrogation. You see, God made himself known with a sense of humor. He made himself known with real love. And so that eventually, you know, one day the interrogators gave me a magazine because it was brought in by the, the, um, the uh, embassy. Once a month I would meet the embassy and they gave a magazine and they gave me magazines as reward, like for doing really well in the interrogation. And so they gave me this magazine and on the front of it was a nice roast, like a roast pork. <laughs> of course I felt like eating it. But um, Stephen says, can you make this? <laughs> Like, this is not an interrogation question. But what it shows is that God is creating a family even there. And I think one of the things that went through the, as we went through the interrogation, it became harder and harder for them to do their job because I became their friend. That's what God, how he does it. You see, it's not like, you know, because they would ask me in the interrogation, so do you guys hand out Bibles and do you like do all this and this and this? And I'd be like, no. And they're like, well, how do you do it? How do you share your life as you're doing aid and all these things? I just said, very naturally, supernaturally, naturally. I said, just like I'm kind of doing with you. I am just living my life believing that my relationship with God is the first and foremost thing that matters to me. And I am praying and I am seeking him about every decision. And I'm not in control of my life. I let him lead me because he has a way better plan through this time than I do. My plan might be just like stay on the floor and not peel myself off. I can't get up and fall into deep despair. And his plan was, no, use this time to serve me and make myself known to these people. Maybe it's their only chance. It was really amazing to see John 5:17 God at work. So I could trust God when I saw him showing up in that room. It wasn't easy. It was hard. And sometimes he would just cheer me up. It wasn't all about, oh, I just did all these things and I went in there and, you know, these ha things happened with the interrogators and the guards. Sometimes he would just cheer me up. One day I looked at my, they had these heavy curtains. They had bars on the windows and then heavy curtains in front of them. So you really could hardly get any light. 
And one day, I'd been staring at those curtains so much, like I knew every mosquito splatter on my walls. You know, I, I made my little bed into like little checkerboard and I tried sitting in every single position and I thought, oh, okay, I have a hundred places to sit in this room. You see, you do all these crazy strategies to cope. But one day I just looked at these, this curtains and I was just really feeling sad. And I saw all, the, the, all of a sudden the pattern on the curtains, which was these kind of palm trees, they were like these kneeling down palm trees. And I'd actually heard one of my guards, when they walked in, say, this is the ugliest curtain I've ever seen. <laughs> they really hated the curtains. They were dark and heavy. And God said, I'm just reminding you, every one of those reminding, wants to remind you of people praying for you on their knees. And all of a sudden, I loved the curtains. And then when I went that day, next, the six steps into the interrogation room, those same curtains were in there. I was like, wow, you have people praying for me in every room. God cheers us up in most unique ways. But you know what? God designs us for our story. Some people said to me, well, I couldn't do what you did. And I'm like, well, I couldn't do what you do. <laughs> because when God designs a person, he designs them perfectly for their story. But you have to step into that. You have to choose that. You have to choose to walk in the design that you're designed for. And you know, when I walked through, even though I didn't choose to go into that room, and then I had 19 months basically in, in a house arrest situation, I didn't choose to go in it. When the day of the trial, they asked me to stand outside and make sure there was no media frenzy. How can I do that? See, they just had this way of always playing us against each other. But you know what? God had a plan to care for me and to show me 100% that my relationship with him was secure. And his love for all those around me was extremely powerful. And he designed that story for me. And every day I got up, I had to say, okay, I'll choose. And sometimes I had to just sing and sing and sing and sing until my heart was comforted again. And I could choose that. God is never surprised with our story. He's never blindsided by something that happens to us. And just as he wants you to remember that he holds you in his hand, that he holds on to you, that he never lets you go, he also wants everyone else to know that he never lets them go. And so for me, when I look back, it was an honor to be in that situation. It was an honor to be there because everything this word says is true and practical and real and restorative and renews us, our heart and mind and soul, and it works. In Acts, after all, the Holy Spirit came down and all these people got newly saved and experienced God in a new way, it says in chapter two, that first, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the word and to the teaching and to getting together with each other and to prayer. And after they did that, they just devoted themselves to it. And that was what I had to do. I had to choose that every day. You may be going through something. 
And we have to choose. That word devoted actually comes from the word that means steadfastly moving in that direction. Intentional about that devotion. And what came next? It said this awe fell over them. And what came next? Signs and wonders. Miracles, things that were impossible. And God's saying, whatever you're going through, if you step in and you're devoted to me, on the other side of that, I have gifts for you to unpack. And while you're unpacking them, I also have put in your heart the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. So please unpack those too. Because I've given you the grace for your story. And your story, no matter what it is, is a hope story. And no matter how much you might mess up that story, along the way you mess it up or you do the wrong thing or you're stuck in one part of that story, God is saying, but here's the new hope story. I've already written it. Here's the new hope story. Step into it. Come on. It's not over. It's not wrecked. It's not blindsided to me. God is always writing hope stories. It's an incredible thing to take Jesus at his word. It's an incredible thing to walk day by day in his counsel and see not only that does he love us and he's with us and he will never leave us, but he, that he loves every person that doesn't know him equally. And he will find a way for them to bump into you and then supernaturally, naturally introduce himself through you. But you have to give him a chance. You have to take a little risk. You have to count the cost. And people overseas, global family, a large family of people that are working and some that you saw in the video, there's a cost for them. Cost for their children, cost for their families. Can you take that cost onto yourself and just wake up early and pray? Can you take that cost and just participate? Can you take that cost and go on one of those trips and, and just hands-on help? Because that is an important part of carrying out the design that God has designed you for to be part of your own hope story in the best possible way. And so I can testify, God is amazing to write hope stories, even in the most difficult times. And so I end with the same phrase we sang at our wedding, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Take the mic. As Julia said, it was a choice during those 775 days to join in what God was doing. And it was sometimes a hard choice because it was hard. It was difficult. We had to cry out to God often. But you know what God did every time we cried out to him? He answered. Sometimes it was that peace that surpasses all understanding. It would just, that wave would just wash over me. Sometimes it was a verse. Sometimes it was a song. But God always answered with something. And I read verses like Psalm 46.1 says, God is ever present in times of trouble. And I like that he's ever present. In John 5.17 that Julia said, my father is always at work. You realize he's always at work because that's what he says. And he's always present. So no matter where we are, what we're doing, what's happening, God is present, God is at work, and we get to choose to participate with him. And it's a choice because we can choose not to. 
You know, after those six months in being interrogated, isolated, I went into that prison, as you heard in the video. 14 people in my cell. If I wanted anything, I had to buy it. I wanted to eat, I had to have money to buy food. I wanted a toothbrush, I had to buy it. See, in prison, it costs you in China. So money had to come from outside. $500 a month or so it would cost me to live in prison. It would help reduce some of the budget debt here in Canada if they would do that, maybe. I don't know. But also, the other problem is 28.4% of the time, they don't make enough food to purchase. So that was just God's diet plan, that's all. I figured. But lights are on 24-7. You know, people are watching you all the time. And when I first got to that prison, I, there was a little guy, he tried to be friendly to me because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, I'm all happy to be here. I wasn't like that. And uh, this guy, Henry Gao, said, you know, Kevin, this is all in Chinese. He says, Kevin, just think of, this is a long holiday. It was not Club Med, okay? But later on, as he saw that I would get up at, every morning at 3 or 3.30, because God would wake me up every day. And that was my quiet time from then till 5.30 or 6 in the morning. He said, I think God's giving you a chance to study. And a short time later, as he was convicted, and he's going to be sent off to the next big prison, he said, Kevin, I want to believe like you. Because God is always at work, and he's always present. You know, I spent 19 months in that prison, 900 people in that prison. 100 were women in another section. People who came through my cell were about 80 or 90 people passed through my cell. And God had a plan for that captive audience. And I got to choose to participate in what God was going to do in that cell. People, petty thieves, drug addicts, a lot of drug addicts came through. Police officers, mafia members, murderers, a couple of people who were going to be executed. And God did have a plan for them. I didn't stand in my little wooden bed and preach. But I prayed, God, let them ask questions. And I was ready to give an answer to everyone who asked. One guy, one time a guy came to me and he, he said, you remind me of my mother. Yes, I was quite concerned too. And then he said, you talk about that Jesus. Can you tell me about him? See, he didn't want to hear when he was outside and free, but in the confines of a prison, in the hopelessness of a prison, he wanted to hear about Jesus. And how would that happen unless I was there? A little bit of trivia for you. In China, they have a 99.9% .9 conviction rate. They are very good. Okay. You have to remember that. So people would come and talk to me different times. They didn't make a big deal of it, but they would come and kind of sit down and start chatting. One got time a university professor sat down beside me. He had stolen a lot of money. And he said, can you just tell me some Bible stories? So we just shared some Bible stories. It was incredible. And there were some funny things that happened also. I mean, they're funny now, but not really funny then. So when we eat in our food groups, we, uh, you know, you take turns buying food. There's three or four people who eat together. You take turns buying food. And, you know, meat is a scarcity thing there. And if there is meat, you pay a lot more for it. So whenever there was a dish with a bit of meat in it, when there was food, because 28.4% of the time there's no food, right? I would, it was my turn. I would 
I got the privilege of asking, oh, could you put a little bit more meat in our, our bowl? First little while, the guard did that. So I would, you know, every few days, it would be my turn to buy food. And I'd ask, could you just add a little bit more meat? And he said, oh, yeah, give the foreigner some extra meat. So that was nice. Come back with a few little slivers. And then after a few weeks, he said no. And he would laugh. And I thought, oh, you know, perks of being a foreigner have just gone out the window. And you have to remember, in China, they're very superstitious. Okay? Then, a few weeks later, that guard died. They replaced that guard with someone else who was in charge of serving the food. So it became my turn to buy food again. And I asked for a bit more meat. He never said no. <laughs> True story, okay. So there were some, there were some fun things that happened in prison. That was, I wasn't really laughing then, okay, you understand that. But God just kept showing up. But I want you to understand the ordeal was hard. I want to read you a little portion from our book. And it's in the lobby if you'd like to buy it. I cried to God many times a day, often many times a minute. Every time peace came, words, phrases, or timely passages connected me to the aspects of God's character and his larger story, helping me trust and manage the debilitating pain. Sometimes pain gripped so tight my whole body radiated pain in an all-encompassing all ache as if my body would one day have enough and collapse. One evening, deep despair set in. Overcome with constant waves of pain and unable to sleep, I hummed an old hymn that stopped after the first phrase, take my life and let it be. See, I wanted heaven to rescue me. But I called out to God again, and he raised me up again. He brought that hope, he brought that peace, he brought that strength. And I had to do that every day and not just once a day. Because it was hard, but God was present. I want you to know God keeps showing up and he's fully aware of what's going on. I would get an embassy visit once a month for 30 minutes. I really had no other visitors. I wasn't allowed them. 30 minutes once a month. So I knew about when they would come. The approximate date, I could guess. There wasn't no announcement. I would just guess 30 days. Okay, it's going to be about this day. So one day I'm, you know, prison is pretty boring. Everything's the same. Guards don't like it when something changes. They don't like it when there's fights. Like there was a fight one time in the next cell to me. And the solution to the fight was to move the in instigator to my cell. And then the guy they moved was big, okay? The only way to describe him is a sumo wrestler. Like he was that big. And they moved him beside me. And our beds are really close together. Our boards, I should say. And I just thought, you know, if he rolls over, I am dead. <laughs> the fight was over food. So as soon as he sat down, I said, want a cookie? <laughs> but we got to be friends, you know. And then he said, I can do the splits, you know. And I, I, just, I could not picture that. I could not. But he did. Anyways. It was kind of funny at the time. It's funnier now. But anyways, the days are boring in prison. Every day, breakfast at 6.40. Really, really bland and boring. Every day, lunch at 11 o'clock when there's food. 
Every day, dinner at five o'clock, if there's food and if it's edible. Because sometimes the guys in the cell would look at what's coming down the, the hallway and they'd look and say, uh-uh, not buying that today. So it was hard. And one day I was just sitting there and this song that you know, if you've ever been to Sunday school, you know this song, it was dropped into my heart. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Right? And it just, it was dropped into my heart, but it wasn't like this gentle whisper that God sometimes does, like when he spoke to Elijah in 1 Kings. It came suddenly and powerfully, as if God was saying, pay attention. It was forceful, and it was urgent. And so I started just humming that and thinking about that song. Moments later, they came and took me out of my cell, handcuffed me, took me to an interrogation room, and then they charged me with espionage. That instilled fear. But God had said moments before, I love you. I know what's going on. I'm fully aware, and it's okay. It didn't feel okay, but I knew God had this. I knew who he was at work. And I kept seeing him at work again and again and again. In the other prisoners, in me, in my situation. April 20th was the day of my trial. I got up as normal because God would wake me up, you know, every morning without fail, 3 or 3.30. And I would open my Bible and I'd start reading and praying. Lots of time to read. Lots of time to pray. And I opened my Bible to where I happened to be reading. You know there's no happen to be, right? I was at Psalm 23. I got to verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. God wanted to say again, I know what's going on. I am with you. And the Holy Spirit was strong and present. Opened up a devotional book I had because the embassy pushed that I could have other books. And I opened up that book to April 20th. And the title for that day was Not Guilty. God knew about the 99.9%. But he said, you're not guilty. <coughs> Think about how God did that. Years before, he spoke to someone and said, write this, and he obeyed. We lost everything in those days. Everything was taken from us. Lots, lots of stuff, lots of money. We were purged. Really, we completely reset. But this was God's doing. We were not a prisoner of Rome or a Chinese government. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. We were God's prisoner in that place because he chose us to spend time in that place with the Ministry of State Security. He chose us for me to spend time in that prison with those 900 people and many people who passed through to be the light of Jesus in that place. And I got to choose to join God in what he wanted to do there. And many, many things happened. Many good things. But can I remind you of one thing? Matthew 28, Mark 16 they give us a command. They say, go. Okay. We had to go to China. God, and God knew what was going to happen. The go says, go and make disciples. Go and preach the good news. And that's our choice too, to go. Sometimes the going is just across the street or to your workmate. Sometimes the going involves praying. 
Sometimes the going involves giving. But let me tell you, the going, it has a cost, yes, but it's so, so worth it. When those people ask that question, can you just tell me about Jesus? Tell me about that Jesus you know. It's worth it. It was hard, but it's worth it. But Paul told us, we're going to have some trouble, right? He said, you're going to have some light and momentary troubles. His light and momentary troubles were a little more than we would think, right? Shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, many things like that. But he gave us the answer. He says, so, fix, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but it was unseen. For what is unseen is eternal. That's where our eyes need to be focused. Not on what's around us. I could not focus on what was around me, but I could focus on Jesus. Prison, our light and momentary troubles have opened up incredible doors for us now. We can't go back to China. Not a good idea to try at the moment. But he's opened up opportunities with us with governments, with people who are in very similar situations. In other countries like Myanmar, in difficult places, difficult border places. And it's just incredible what God does. We worked quietly in China for 30 years, and God said, hey, I've got two bonus years for you. And that's where we look at them. They are our bonus years. Let me remind you of two things. John 5, 17, God is always at work. There is never a moment he's not. Psalm 46, 1, God is always present. And one last thing before you go today. Remember, everyone must hear about Jesus, and we're his spokesman. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure how many times Julia and Kevin used the word cost, and it was an expensive experience. Uh, but Jesus would say to every one of his followers, count the cost, count the cost, because it costs you to follow Jesus. And the reality is for those of us who chose to follow Jesus, who counted the cost and we, we said, it's not too high. And we've experienced then the riches of knowing Jesus. And we are imperfect people and we experience it in imperfect ways. Do, do you understand what it means to count the cost or pay the cost? It's difficult and here's why it is. You and I, we like to control, don't we? We like to control our circumstances. Some of us like to control other people. And you have to give up control to follow Jesus. That's the cost. Some of us like to control our money. That's why we have trouble being generous and, and, and with even works around the world. Because it's scary to give up control. Some of us want to control our agendas in our lives. But what we don't understand is every time we give up control, there's where the freedom really is. The freedom to follow Jesus, to hear his voice, to respond to him with confidence. So I'd like to invite you to, to stand in this room if you would, because I, I want to lead you in a prayer, an opportunity to maybe give up some control. Now, at the end of our gathering, uh, Kevin and Julia will be in the lobby. And, you know, I recommend picking up their book. This is their account uh, of what they went through and what God has taught them through these experiences. And you can pick up a copy in the lobby. 
Here's what I like to do, and if it's helpful to you, whether you're online, wherever you may be, or in this room, sometimes I like to hold my hands in front of me, almost like whatever I've been holding on, I hold it out as if I'm going to give it to God. So if this is helpful to you, I'd invite you to close your eyes and maybe just hold your hands out in front of you. And for some of us, it's our lives we're holding. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus didn't hold on to heaven. But he let go of that to come and rescue us. And so God, in this moment, we surrender our lives. And this is you, if this is where you're at, friends, I'd invite you to simply say that. God, I surrender control of my life. Forgive me of all the things that I've done that have hurt or harmed others or has blocked my relationship with you. I surrender. I surrender it all to you. Fill me with your spirit. Guide me by your spirit. Lord, I want to be under your control, a captive to Jesus as it may be. For others, it might look a little different. And maybe you're holding before you some of your resources or even your agenda or decision path in life. So God, we hold up the things that we try to keep control of. And God, we ask you to guide us by your spirit. Lord, we want to trust you that when our hands are in, when our lives are in your hands, you have the better plan. You have the better way. You know. And so God, by holding our hands up, we say, not my will, but your will be done. So Father, I bless your people today. I pray, God, that we would hear the voice of the Spirit guiding us. I pray from among us, there would be those of us who would feel a spark, a spark maybe to spending our lives in service to you, Jesus. For those of us in this room or online, maybe someone would be sparked to, to open their hands and with fresh measure of generosity, give to what you're doing around the world. For those of us, Lord, who might feel the spark of the Spirit to be praying more for our global workers, for what you're doing around the world, give us sensitive hearts to know when you're speaking to us. We pray this collectively as a community in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. And everyone said to me that believes this, amen and amen. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.